0: Welcome to the Public Services Reform podcast from the Centre for Market and Public Organisation. My name is Ramesh Vaitalingam and I'm at a conference at CMPO on public service reform in developing countries where the keynote speaker has been Professor Grant Miller from Stanford Medical School. And Grant's with me now, and we're going to talk a little bit about his, his research programme. Grant, why, why don't you start off by giving us a flavor, kind of an overview of uh, the kind of things you're interested in finding out about.
1: Yeah, thank you. Well, it's, uh, this has been a terrific conference. I've been really happy to be here. Um, one of the big themes of the conference seems to be focused on trying to understand how the incentives of those with responsibility for delivering services can be better aligned with uh, ultimate objectives in a lot of public programs. Um, So I I know the health sector relatively better, so I can talk a little bit more about that. Um, I I think the concern is that there's not a close alignment between the incentives of people with responsibility for delivering services, both from the more macro or political level all the way down to the very micro level in the case of health, say, an individual health worker. So um, there's a lot of interest in trying to understand how... Uh, the incentive structures more at the micro level or the organizational level than the macro level can be uh, can be altered to better align uh, incentives with social objectives, say health improvement in the case of health.
0: So why don't we just unpack that a little bit more, explain what you mean by the kind of incentives and the kind of people whose incentives you're you're looking at. Yeah. So
1: um, in a lot of cases, the idea would be to take certain markers for success. So in the case of health, it could be something like increasing vaccination rates among kids or increasing the share of pregnant women who have their babies in hospitals rather than at home. And so there'll be direct rewards. Uh, Oftentimes, these are financial rewards. There's quite a lot of interesting debate about the relative merits of financial incentives versus non-financial incentives. Maybe you introduce financial incentives and it destroys the motivation of people who uh, are very intrinsically motivated to do a good job in their position. Um, But by providing financial incentives, you'll get more focus on achieving these markers for success in public service delivery. Uh, Of course, anytime you go around mucking with incentives, you can always make things worse than they were to, to begin in the first place. And so that's a pretty serious issue as well. So if you reward markers for success and they're a subset of the overall activity that a service provider is responsible for, then you have the natural concern that they might ignore these other things that they're not being rewarded for, even though that's an important
0: part of their job, too. Can you give us a bit of a feel about how economists come in and analyse these things? How, how they do natural experiments yeah. or how they, how they do field experiments to try and think about one group of people might be given incentives, another group might not, and then you try and make the comparisons. Sure. So, um, you know, the the simplest thing to do would be just to compare
1: performance in areas with incentives and without incentives. And when you do that, there's a natural concern that there are all sorts of other differences uh, between areas with and without the use of incentives to improve service delivery. So the second approach is sort of the natural experiment approach, which says that rather than just comparing the two groups, those with and without incentives at a given point in time, Why don't you follow areas or organizations or individuals over time as incentives are introduced? And it lets you account for the fact that there are differences between them that have nothing to do with the incentives. And then you look for a sort of differential change in performance with the introduction of incentives in one group and not in the other group. Um, And then I think the sort of trendy direction, at least among development economists today, is doing formal experiments. So rather than just having a policy that's introduced in one area and not in another area and studying the relative evolution of performance indicators in those two groups over time, instead go out and formally randomize uh, incentives to some people and others. And what randomization really buys you is it gets rid of all differences, if you do it correctly, both those that you can observe as well as those that you can't really observe directly. Um, between the two groups and it really lets you attribute differences and performance over time directly to the incentives in a more rigorous way.
0: Can you give an example of, of this in practice, of maybe something from your research or, or others' research of how, how they've done an experiment of this kind looking at different groups? Yeah, sure. So um, so I've
1: been doing some work in India that studies a common policy approach to trying to improve maternal and, he- maternal and child health. And the idea... Um, so I'll tell you sort of a roundabout story, and maybe you can just interrupt me when it's too roundabout. So the, the basic policy approach in a lot of Indian states right now is to try to promote institutional deliveries, pregnant women having their babies in hospitals rather than at home, as a way of improving maternal and, and neonatal health outcomes. Um, what I think, and, and some programs work through the public sector, some work through the private sector, but I think one general observation that characterizes a lot of these programs is that there are a lot of women who are eligible to use these public benefits that, that either subsidize their costs or give them financial rewards for institutional deliveries uh, who don't take it up. So uh, you've made it easier or cheaper or more financially attractive for them to have their babies in hospitals and not at home, and they're still not choosing to do that. So the natural question is why? And no one really knows the answer to why. One possible explanation for why is that the quality of care provided by these hospitals is not very good. So just because I make something cheaper for you, uh, if it's not very valuable to you, you may not be inclined to go and use it anyway. Um, so in in this broader concern about the role that quality of care plays in policies to promote institutional deliveries as a way of improving maternal and child health, um, in the state of Karnataka, some uh, colleagues of mine and I are conducting an experiment in rural areas that are really only served by the private sector. Uh, the private Working through the private sector is something that governments, state governments, are trying to do when there are populations that are beyond the clear reach of public sector institutions. And in, in the private sector, we're doing an experiment that tries to test how uh, private obstetricians and gynecologists perform when you reward them for either improvements in the quality of maternity care delivery services that they provide, or alternatively, when you reward them for actual improvement in health outcomes in their local areas. And so this is something that we use this methodological approach for. We formally randomize these incentives. One thing I think that's I find quite compelling and I don't think much is known about is uh, embedded in this project, which is the idea that performance incentives could focus on rewarding sort of intermediate markers for performance. So in this case, it would be better quality of care adherence to WHO guidelines or things like this, or it could focus on rewarding sort of the farther downstream or ultimate outcome that one might really care about, say, better health. And what's, what I think is interesting about that is the, the promise of rewarding better health rather than the intermediate markers is that it really gets us out of the business of saying that we really know what's the right way to improve health in these areas. In some sense, it's kind of backwards to think that we're going to sit here far away and come up with the right solution. It's really people that live in these areas and work In these areas and are on the ground and understand very well what people value, what's going to work and what's not going to work, that are potentially the ones that have the right insights, the right ability to be creative or innovative in finding new ways to deliver services that we're going to have a hard time coming up with prescriptively from the outside. So when you reward the outcome without saying how it should be achieved, you create much stronger incentives for innovation at the local level without really getting involved in telling people exactly how they should go about making things better.
0: Well, that that raises an issue really about about how generalizable some of these research findings are when you're looking at these uh, micro-interventions and and comparing different different groups and changing the incentives of one versus the other, and how much you can take the experience in one country or one region of one country and applying it elsewhere in the world.
1: So um, the strict answer is uh, there is no generalizability, and (laughs) that's certainly a big challenge. And I think that um, there are groups that try to recognize that you do an experiment in one setting, and you learn some sort of relationship in that setting, and from a policy perspective, you'd like to know about it in other settings, it's not very exciting for an academic who's worried about publishing in some fancy journal not to get fired to go and replicate exactly the same thing in another place. It's not it's such a big bang effect. But there are uh, organizations that try to promote the replication of what's been successful in one place to other settings. It's actually quite high value to understand variation in uh, performance of strategies across institutional settings. I think the other way that informally a lot of academics think about it, even if they wouldn't say this on uh, tape like you're asking me to, is that if you learn something deeper about behavior, rather than just saying this program had an effect but you say why this program had an effect or why an incentive scheme had an effect i think people in the back of their minds sort of think that there's some commonalities about behavior which are true uh, across populations so if you learn something deeper about behavior there might be a little bit more of a generalizable element to that than the strict uh, refusal to apply estimates from one local population to another. Um, the strict view is really the correct one, but
0: I think other people have this this uh, view in the back of their minds too. We've we've talked a little bit about about the incentives for healthcare providers, but, but in one of your uh, earlier remarks, you kind of alluded to the, the issue of the incentives for people to take care of their own health and, yeah. and make decisions that uh, benefit them. And this is something that we feel in the West as much as in developed uh, yeah. developing countries. Issues around decided not to smoke or you know, eat, eating well, right. but there are all sorts of decisions that people can make in developing countries that can benefit their their health. That's right. How, how, how do you think about those kind of behaviors? Yeah.
1: No, that's a great question. So a lot of the focus of this conference and what we've been talking about has been on the supply side. So the incentives of those who provide services or technologies. Um, so on the demand side, there's this very general puzzle that uh, from the outside, uh, there are health technologies that are highly efficacious, that are pretty simple and inexpensive, that are very appropriate for low-income country diseases, that when they're supplied, uh, people don't take and use them as much as you think they should, given their health benefits. Um, and they, there are a lot of people working on this problem, and there's not a clear answer that exists yet. Clearly, if you charge some money versus providing something for, you know, a very low cost or even for free, that's an important determinant of adoption. But there are other things at play as well that people don't understand very well. The, the current approach in a lot of policy circles is to try to promote these services or technologies through education and marketing campaigns. In other words, trying to both inform people about Uh, the benefits of the technologies or the harms of the diseases they combat Um, and this sort of persuasion side of things which is more about trying to coax people into taking something uh, that maybe they're not otherwise choosing to take for themselves hasn't actually been studied that well Uh, remarkably so given how many how many resources are being devoted to this and It's certainly the case that people don't have perfect information about uh, what a technology does or what the probability that they get a disease is with and without a technology. But in some cases, it's also hard to imagine that they're completely clueless. And so you sort of learn on your own some over time about some diseases. Some are easier to learn about than others. Um, and I think that there is possibly an alternative view that could be important, about which there's not very much evidence, which you sort of alluded to in what, when you mentioned you know, us making choices about our own diets, which is that people ultimately are not making all of their choices simply in a way that focuses on health. In other words, they don't just care about health. Sure, they'd like to be healthy as opposed to being sick, but that's not all they care about in their lives. And when they make choices about using a technology or service, they're making a choice that's about their happiness. And so in some cases, they may choose something because it makes them healthy and that contributes to their happiness. In other cases, they may recognize that a technology would improve their health, but it's going to make them unhappy in other ways. And I think that this can vary enormously by by cultural context, local conditions, institutional settings. Um, But uh, it could be the case that people are making fairly well-informed choices not to adopt technologies that we think are no-brainers, And that, um, you know, no amount of marketing or education is going to change that decision if they understand fairly well the choice you're going to make. It implies a very different approach, which would be, Try to understand in a more nuanced way what people don't like about those technologies. Maybe they don't like flavor of chlorine, strong chlorine in the water. Maybe they don't like sleeping under beds, bed nets that restrict airflow when it's 100 degrees and 100% humidity. And design around that and, and try to learn, does that not maybe increase the adoption of uh, these technologies um, when you address attributes about them, have nothing to do with their ability to make people healthier, but are sort of the central bottlenecks that uh, keep people from taking them and using them more.
0: Final question, Bron. I, w- I wonder if you could give us a flavor of, of how policymakers are reacting to the body of research that's coming out of, if you like, the, the new development economics. Um... Um... You know, how, how how policymakers, both both in the in in the developing countries that we're trying to have an impact on, but also the sort of the the, the donor countries thinking about trying to get the the best bang for their buck, if it were for for their aid dollar. So the the truth of it um,
1: um I don't know enormously well, but there are many considerations that go into a policymaker's choice, and evidence is not the only one. <laughs> um, and even when evidence plays a crucial role, a lot of times policymakers have very strong preconceived notions. And so it takes a long period of time to sort of change the popular thinking about a problem. And that's very different from saying, I have this one study that shows you this piece of evidence, and so therefore we should do things differently. To really change thinking in policymaker circles takes a a sort of long, uh, protracted uh, effort to show uh, through a series of accumulated studies and body of knowledge that uh, some previous approach to addressing an issue is just not working as well as an alternative approach. And it's very seldom the case that you show someone a study and they really change their mind about
0: it. <laughs> well, we'll come back uh, perhaps another occasion and talk some more okay. about where, where, where your research has been going and, okay. uh, and, and the impact on policy. But thank okay. you very much, thanks, to, Miller. No, my pleasure. Thank you.